Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. C.L. Bragg. Dr. Bragg is the author of Distinction in Every Service, Brigadier General Marcellus A. Stovall, CSA, and co-author of Never for Want of Powder, the Moon Over Carolina, William Moultrie and American Liberty. Bragg's interest in General Moultrie sprung from conducting research on his family's South Carolina heritage. Throughout the discussion, you'll learn who General Moultrie was, his pivotal role in the American Revolution, and his relationship to General George Washington. And now, Drs. Bragg and Bradburn. Welcome here, Dr. Bragg. It's great to see you at Mount Vernon. Here we are, prepared to have a, a, a library book talk about your new book, Crescent Moon Over Carolina, William Moultrie and American Liberty. Now, you've taken a little uh, more circuitous route to uh, writing history books than some of our past guests who are themselves professional historians or teachers. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your own background. Well, I've always been interested in history. I just never was able to indulge myself until after I established myself in my career as an anesthesiologist in Thomasville, Georgia. Mm. Um, my main interest had previously been the American Civil War, and I'd written two books about that, um, a biography of an obscure Confederate general named Stovall. <laughs> and I have to be careful. Stovall, not Stonewall. Stovall, and I have to be careful when I say that because if I'm not careful, I'll, I'll say I've written an obscure book about a Confederate general. <laughs> well, there are many of those. And then the, the history of the Confederate gunpowder factory in Augusta, which um, was a very important entity. I was a new member of the Society of the Cincinnati of South Carolina in 2008. Ah, and okay. like I normally do, I completely immerse myself in a subject particularly where it pertains to my family. Mm. And I noticed that there were, there were books about Francis Marion, Andrew Pickens, Thomas Sumter. Right. Um, I think when most people think about the revolution in South Carolina, they think of the Swamp Fox and, and you know, the, the partisan warfare in the backcountry. And even the Yankees who came down and did well, like uh, Daniel Morgan and Nathaniel Green. That's right. Well, Daniel Morgan, I think, was well, a Virginia. From Virginia. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. That's right. Green, of course, qualifies. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, there, there just seemed to be a void with General Moultrie. And, mm -hmm. and I asked around, why was there not a biography of General Moultrie? And nobody knew. And the, the, they kept coming back, why don't you do it? Why don't you do mm -hmm. it? Well, the, you know, military histories and biographies of military leaders is not exactly the current... Uh, coin of the academic writing world but you know and on the other hand 
there's a huge literature course on generals of all kinds and other officers of all kinds in the Civil War, which doesn't seem yet to have fit the American Revolution. Why do you think that is? Why are people more interested in the Civil War generalship than the American Revolution story? I think maybe because it's a little closer in time mm -hmm. to them, making it a little more tangible. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the family lore still exists. Mm -hmm. um, many of us know stories about our ancestors who fought in the Civil War, but very yeah. few of us know anything about our ancestors participation in the American Revolution. It, it is striking, uh, particularly in the South. It's such a powerful story still and, uh, uh, and a popular one for readers and authors. And, you know, but yet the revolution in South Carolina was a civil war. I mean, of any of the colonies, it was riven with all sorts of uh, brother on brother and family on family and, uh, and complicated. It, it was, and it was vicious, too. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I think when you pit neighbor against neighbor with perhaps old grudges and political biases, it, it can be quite awful. Um, you know, the Continentals thought of themselves as, as a professional army like the British, and so they were more apt to engage in the rules of civilized warfare than the partisan bands, both patriot and loyalist, that, that roamed around the South Carolina countryside. Right, you really see a breakdown of law and order in a substantial way in the backcountry in particular. Okay, uh, so excellent. So you have a family connection then to, to the Moultries, or is it just your family connection to your society of Cincinnati led my, you to look into the Moultrie world? My ninth great-grandfather and my ninth great-uncle both fought under Moultrie and Francis Marion. Unbelievable. Well, that's some good genealogical work on it, your part. It was some work. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the Moultries then. Uh, it's an extensive family. It's an important family in South Carolina in the colonial period. Tell us a little bit about where the Moultries fit into the, the, the gentry class of South Carolina. William Moultrie was the son of a prominent Charleston physician who was very much beloved. And they were probably one rung below the low country planter aristocracy. But he married a Huguenot girl who came from a very landed and moneyed family. In fact, I like to say Moultrie made his money the old-fashioned way he married it. <laughs> Very common for Virginia gentry to do yes, that, too. I've, I've heard of at least one <laughs> That's who right. managed to do that. Yeah, George. But with, with money and land came political influence, and he was elected to the Commons, Common House of Assembly. Mm -hmm. And when South Carolina start, started to become militarized as a result of uh, Great Britain's declaration that the colonies were in revolt, um, he was one of the top leaders who was chosen for regimental command. So, uh, William Moultrie, though, had a past uh, in the colonial war. He did, yeah. I, I would have liked to have rather mentioned that in the answer before. He, yeah. he, was, he and his brother John both fought against the Cherokees. Right. Now, John 
used his political connections and went to Florida to become Lieutenant Governor of East Florida. And John Moultrie Jr. John Moultrie Jr. was also trained as a doctor. He was a physician. Dr. Doctor. John Moultrie Jr. He trained at the University of Edinburgh. And um, a lot of Scots in South Carolina. A lot of Scots. But and from the Cherokee Wars on, Moultrie stayed in the militia. Mm -hmm. uh, gaining ever-increasing... William Moultrie. William Moultrie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so William Moultrie serves uh, in the Cherokee Wars, which were bloody, mm -hmm. um, kind of a war of conquest. Uh, and were they led by Colonel James Grant of James Florida? James Grant was, uh, the, he was the third. Okay. There were three campaigns between 1759 and 61. Okay. Uh, Governor Littleton uh, led... The first one, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the second. Littleton, one. did he go to Jamaica after that? Right after. Right after. Okay. He got the campaign went badly, and, and he left immediately. Oh, okay. And then I think in Montgomery was the next one, and then Grant was the third. Mm -hmm. And Moultrie was definitely along. William Moultrie was definitely along for the first two, and first and third, and probably the second. There was there was an interesting connection between East Florida and its development in that period, following the, uh, the Cherokee Wars and South Carolina. And to what extent did your your research get into that world at all? I only have the vaguest notion of it myself. Not very not very far. Only as it pertained to William and yeah. and so th this I know. Um, Brother John was down there uh, much of the time as acting governor, because mm -hmm. as lieutenant governor, when the governor left, the lieutenant governor right. was in control. Um, William Moultrie was asked by Major General Charles Lee, hey, what do you think about going and trying to take St. Augustine? Mm. And William Moultrie seemed to relish the idea. Um, it, it never panned out. Panned out. The, the, the lost uh, state to Florida. We could have had Florida in the Union. And, and then the <laughs> then St. Augustine came up again in my research after their brother Tom got killed in the siege lines at Charleston. Mm -hmm. There's there's a very poignant uh, exchange of correspondence between John Moultrie Jr. and one of the other Moultrie brothers mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. poor Tom mm -hmm. being killed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, so uh, Moultrie in uh, South Carolina then can be a lot of different things, but most of them have some connection to planting. They, Talk to a little bit about the Low Country Planting Society. They they planted rice and they planted indigo, and then when the bottom fell out of the indigo market, they started planting cotton. Mm -hmm. I, I think Moultrie, William Moultrie, um, did pretty well with his rice and his indigo. After the war, he sort of drifted away from planting because he served two terms as governor of South Carolina and the rest of the time he was in the legislature and he had a lot of things going on. Mm. And then when it came time to plant cotton, he wasn't very good at it. Yeah, okay. But what do you know about his economic world? I mean, what kind of records are there to recreate that? There are no actual economic records of his, mm. but there are lots and lots of lawsuits from his creditors mm. trying to 
uh, recoup their losses mm -hmm. from him. And it was rumored that he had served time in debtor's prison, and I investigated that and found it not to be true. Mm -hmm. But he was impoverished, and by the end of his life was living with his grandson mm -hmm. because he had to sell off all of his property. So a failed planter, ultimately, and under trying conditions. All right, so uh, bring us back to his Revolutionary War experience. I mean, that's really the heart that makes the man uh, that uh, you, you wrote about here. So uh, he has some kind of command given to him at the beginning of the conflict. Lay that out for us. Okay, it's December 1775 to January 1776. They've just organized uh, five regiments in South Carolina. He's given command of one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other commanders, uh, Christopher Gadsden, becomes a member of the Continental Congress. Mm -hmm. So William Moultrie is, is actually in command of two re regiments. They realize the need to fortify Charleston Harbor against the British, and they decide to build a fort on the southern tip of Southern Sullivan's Island, mm -hmm. which is at the northern entrance of the harbor. Right. And the ship channel from the Atlantic Ocean into Charleston runs right past that point. Now, they started construction on this fort in January, and by June, it was really only about halfway finished, mm. which was unfortunate in a way because that's when the British got there and, and attacked. Right, but um, the, the story, when I visited Charleston the first time, the story I got, uh, popular lore, was that the palmettos were so squishy that the cannonballs would hit the, would hit the walls of the fort and they would just kind of be absorbed somehow. And, um, I, what I do you think, think about that? I think that there is some truth <laughs> to that, but that's not the whole truth. Yeah, so tell us why Charleston s survives that first siege. Charleston survived the first siege because... And since you started with the palmetto trees, <laughs> I'll start there. Um, the walls of the fort were constructed of two rows of palmetto logs, 16 feet apart, mm. filled in with sand. There you go. The advantage of the palmetto logs was, was yes, they probably did absorb the impact to a degree, but mostly the sand did that, but they didn't splinter. And mm -hmm. so when the, can the British cannonballs hit the walls of the fort, it didn't sh send showers of splinters mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm -hmm. So the palmetto tree was a factor. The construction of the fort was a factor. Uh, secondly, the British didn't play their hand very well. They stayed 400 yards away and tried to pound the fort into submission. Uh, their usual tactic was to get in closer and to have their marksmen in the mast uh, clear the ramparts of sure, the fort. Marines, yeah. So, they, so that, that's reason number two. Reason number three is because their flanking movement failed when three ships got stuck on the sandbar yeah. where Fort Sumter is now. It's interesting. Yeah, uh, when Lord Adam Gordon visits Charleston in 1765, he describes the, the, as the only defense is the bar, which is a tricky bar. Now that, that, yeah. that bar that he's talking about is, is, a, is a little Different bit further one. out in a series of sandbars okay. with openings. 
What's sort of inexplicable is that the British had been sailing those waters for sure. a long time yeah. and that they did not have an experienced pilot on board mm -hmm. to keep them off the sandbar yeah. is That's astonishing. Hard, hard to I mean, even the French fleet, when it sails to the Chesapeake at the end of the war, they have Chesapeake pilots on board that they picked up in the West Indies. Now, yeah, the, the ineptitude of, of the British Navy on that day, notwithstanding, I don't want to leave the British Army out of this either. <laughs> um, they had landed uh, 2,000 or so troops on what's now Isle of Palms mm -hmm. with the intention of wading across what's called Breach Inlet and, and taking the fort from the rear. It wasn't until General Henry Clinton, Cornwallis, and their men got on the island that they realized that the inlet was seven feet deep mm -hmm. at low tide. Right. And so they were kind of kind of stuck there. So that's four out of the five reasons. <laughs> and the, the fifth reason, I believe, is, is the bravery of the men in the fort and the very careful management of gunpowder and ammunition, they only fired about once a minute. And I don't mean every cannon firing once a minute. They fired one cannon ah. mm. a minute for about 10 hours. Mm. Mm. So we had to ration their supplies they had to, to keep up the fight, but they, not, you know. They had to aim carefully, mm. and as a result, they decimated the British. Mm. The British had uh, 208 killed and quite a number of wounded, while the Americans in the fort had only 12 killed and about mm. 25 wounded. It's a forgotten victory of the American Revolution uh, of crucial importance. Why does it matter? Do you think, you know, what would have happened if the British would have taken Charleston at that moment? At the same time that the British were battering the fort, the Continental Congress was considering a draft of the Declaration of Independence mm. for the first time. Mm -hmm. A British victory in Charleston on June 28, 1776, would have given them a toehold in South Carolina to uh, conquer and establish royal government in the South. That very well could have changed the entire outcome of the war. There was, there was a lot of British opinion that there were many loyalists to be found in the South for a variety of reasons. Uh, when, you know, when they finally do take Charleston much later, that situation may be different, it may not be different. I mean, is your sense that there's something that changes between the, that 76 moment before independence has been declared uh, and you know, their, their potential to sort of build up a loyalist uh, stronghold? The British, whether you talk about South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia, doesn't, they don't seem to have been very good at managing their loyalists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. um, and, and part of the reason I believe in and actually this is getting into my next book. Oh, well good, we'll get to that. Is the, um, the fact that they would change the rules and the Americans who might have been content to sit at home and wait out the war were invigorated to join the Patriot cause. Mm -hmm. so, so you mean they changed the rules? They, they, uh... They uh, asked for different oaths of loyalty. They asked for, they want to confiscate estates. Or well, take, for example, when, when Charleston 
fell to the British in May of 1780. Yeah. The, the British agreed to what we call the Articles of Capitulation, right. which basically stated that the, the Continental soldiers were going to re remain in, in, in Charleston as prisoners on parole. The militia could kind of go home and remain quiet. That was in May. Before he left in June for New York, Henry Clinton issued three proclamations that completely changed the rules. Mm. Um, the Americans who had surrendered were compelled to swear allegiance to the crown, something which they really did not want to do. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they were compelled to uh, joined the Loyalist Militia. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't very happy about that and that drove many American men who might have just been happy to stay peaceable back to the Right, so they felt like the, the British had violated the uh, Articles of Capitulation. Yes. And their paroles. And so therefore they were free to join a partisan band again. Yeah. Or, the, the British didn't quite see it that way and that made for some interesting situations when uh, the British would take into custody someone who they felt had violated their oath. Well and I think that one of the the compelling um, uh, contributions of your book is Moultrie's uh, uh, story as a prisoner of war and what he does. Talk a little bit about why it's so significant in the, in the bigger arc of the American Revolution. No doubt his defense of Fort Moultrie was important. I call it Fort Moultrie because that's what it became known as after the battle and has since mm -hmm. to this very day. Mm -hmm. When the Americans surrendered to the British in May of 1780 in Charleston, very soon Moultrie became the de facto commander of all the Continental troops. Mm -hmm. As such, it was his responsibility to look. Was Clinton exchanged? Ben, uh, or Lincoln? Lincoln? Yeah, was Lincoln exchanged? He was not exchanged, but he was paroled. Okay, he, so he, he was, wasn't there. He was exchanged later. <clears throat> That's why he right. was at Yorktown. Right, right. But, but right. So he was paroled and he went was, somewhere else, wherever he was. Really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so Typical for a commanded officer to receive that. But, yeah. So it, it was left up to Moultrie to deal with the British. Mm -hmm. And the, the British commandant at Charleston, the first one, was uh, seems to have been a fairly reasonable fellow. Um, but he had health issues, and Cornwallis replaced him with a guy who was a really bad actor, Nisbet Balfour, mm -hmm. lieutenant colonel. And he and Moultrie didn't get along from day one. Mm. William Moultrie described him as a proud, haughty Scot. Um, who ruled with an iron hand, very arbitrary in his administration. And there was an endless stream of correspondence between Balfour and Moultrie over the welfare and rights of the American prisoners of war. Paint a picture of the prisoners of war situation in South Carolina. I mean, we think of you know, the prisoners of war in the Revolution. You think, you think of the horrible ship prisons in New York Harbor. When you think of prisoners of wars in the American Civil War, you think of Andersonville, you think of some of these. What is it like in South Carolina? Well, the prisoner of war situation in South 
Carolina evolved between May of 1780 and, let's say, a year later, mm -hmm. July, August 1781, it was manageable for the for the British at first to have these Continental soldiers in barracks and with their officers in another place, but mm -hmm. but free to roam around at liberty within like a five-mile radius. Right, right. It, became more problematic after the British won a few more victories like uh, Wax Halls and, and Camden, mm -hmm. where the, the number of prisoners became unmanageable in terms of housing, feeding, mm -hmm. and medical care. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, the British Commandant began putting them on ships in the harbor ah, with mm -hmm. all the intendant horrors that go Mm -hmm. along with that. Mm -hmm. Then he started looking for ways to, to get those prisoners out of the area altogether, and so they began recruiting off of those ships uh, back into British service to go fight elsewhere, mm. not, not on that continent. Did, they, did the Navy uh, try to impress some, or were they, this was all it, uh, regimental soldiers for the West Indies for the evidence that I saw was yeah. that it was all uh, infantry. Mm -hmm. They were they were raising infantry regiments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so um, so Moultrie, uh, where is he successful uh, in that period, or, or is he he just a gnat in the ointment? He was both. Mm -hmm. I, I think he I think he really did become a nuisance to uh, Balfour, mm -hmm. but I think he was trying to be. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was successful. Sometimes his complaints got results, and sometimes his complaints were just dismissed. Mm -hmm. In fact, Balfour makes a comment on one occasion in a letter to Moultrie, um, I will do what I want to with the prisoners, not what General Moultrie mm -hmm. wants me to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, a lot of the ways the story is told in South Carolina uh, with the coming of Yorktown is essentially Cornwallis at a certain point, uh, you know, has to or realizes that he really needs to stop the flow of men and material from the Chesapeake down into uh, the South. Uh, if he doesn't do that, there's really no way to, con you know, to continue to fight. Uh, even though he's beating, you know, Nathaniel Green, he's still losing men and material, etc. Exactly. So he he leaves, and then there's not enough troops left to hold on to what the British had won. And it sort of collapses back gradually. You know, these little pockets are beaten. What is the perspective from Moultrie's point of view? Is that sort of occurring? I think that there was a dearth of information. Mm -hmm. I think that they would hear rumors of Kings Mountain mm -hmm. and Calpins, but the British really tried to con control the flow of information. They owned the newspaper, the Royal Gazette. Right. Right. And then in July of 1781, um, Moultrie was out of there. Oh, right, so he's exchanged. You, you, you bring up an interesting point about the collapsing situation because this uh, fellow Balfour was very unhappy with uh, Cornwallis leaving the state and said to him in a letter, by trying to, to gain another province, we may lose what we have. Right, yeah, so he could see, he could see that untenable situation he was in uh, as that uh, played itself out. All right, so take me then through Moultrie's post-war career a little bit. Uh, 
uh, hero of the revolution, uh, and then Society of the Cincinnati. What's next, Ramon? Well, one thing that's when you're looking at a biography of a historical figure like like William Moultrie, yeah. um, before the war, you have to really dig hard for details. During the war, it's all pretty linear. Mm. War starts, right. they fight, the war ends. Once they're famous or well-known, yeah. then everything they do gets recorded, and it's sort mm. of yeah, magnified as its own life. Time. Yeah. So one of the great challenges of any of these guys is sort of trying separating to, fact from fiction. And and trying to arrange all of this in a coherent fashion was a challenge. But mm -hmm. after the war, Moultrie served two terms as governor mm -hmm. of South Carolina, um, not consecutive. Mm. And his first term was quiet, and his uh, second term was very tumultuous because of his relationship with the French ministers during the French Revolution. Okay, right, exactly. Right, so sure. so that, that's his politics. Mm -hmm. it, while all that was going on, he founded and became president of the South Carolina Society of the Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and he held that position until his death. Mm -hmm. Concurrent with being governor and um, the Society of Cincinnati, he also had some business adventures, uh, the most important one being the Santee Canal Company, okay, sure. which, which dug a canal from the Santee River to the Cooper River, establishing an inland waterway for the transportation of, of crops and, and whatnot from the back country. Helps connect the back country to the low country, which is key. And that, that really never was a financial success, but, but hmm. what it accomplished really went above and beyond. What it's an interesting parallel with Washington and his interest in canal building with the Potomac as a way to connect the west to the east. I'm glad coast. you brought that up yeah. on two accounts because mm -hmm. um, when the South Carolinians were looking for an engineer, um, Moultrie made inquiries mm -hmm. to Washington about who they might hire and Washington had some suggestions. Oh, he did, yeah. Then. Um, Years later, when the canal was almost done, was about the time when Washington visited the South. Okay, right, the Southern Tour, sure. And so Moultrie accompanied him practically every minute he was in right? South Carolina. And they started um, just south of the border, and he accompanied Washington all the way to Charleston. So I, I feel, I can't prove this, but I feel certain they must have talked about canals because oh, they had to cross the very rivers mm. in, involved. I'm sure. I mean, because Washington was a very active uh, president of the Potomac Navigation Company in the 1780s. And then, and then of course, uh, his close uh, friend and secretary was the president of the, after that. And it was kind of the apple of his eye. Um, interesting connection between the two of them. I mean, how well did they know each other? people that thought they knew George Washington better than they did. <laughs> and he probably he probably knew them better than they knew him. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the case between he and William Moultrie. Mm -hmm. Now, they, they first met in August of 1781 when Moultrie was in Philadelphia on parole. Okay, okay. And 
then there was some correspondence between the two when Moultrie was So cut. August 1781, Washington has just changed his mind about assaulting New York, and he's on his way now to Yorktown. And he stops to pay respects to Congress, and mm -hmm. Robert Morris gives a dinner party. Rochambeau's with him. And, and Moultrie's there. Ah, okay, so he's at the dinner party. He's at the dinner party. That's fantastic. Yeah. So there's correspondence between the two mm -hmm. during Moultrie's first term as governor, and then there's correspondence about the Santee Canal. Yeah. And then when Washington came to Charleston, there was such a schedule of balls, parties, parades, tours, I don't know how they managed to keep up the pace. Mm -hmm. But Moultrie That's was, the Charleston way, right? That's I mean, the Charleston way. Yeah. Um, and Moultrie was his constant companion mm -hmm. during that, mm -hmm. uh, gave him a tour of the fort or what was left of the fort on Sullivan's Island, mm -hmm. gave him a tour of the uh, siege works where the siege of Charleston mm -hmm. had taken place. Yeah. Um, and on Washington's last night in Charleston, Moultrie hosted a private dinner party for him at his home mm -hmm. on Meeting Street, and then subsequently accompanied Washington all the way to the Savannah River before turning mm -hmm. Washington over to the Georgians. Now, from the, from the correspondence between the two, it, it's evident that despite being personality opposites, they, they did have some things in common. Mm. Um, they did develop a friendship of a sort, well, he, keeping, he, keeping in mind who, who and how Washington was. Right, exactly. He was a very guarded man, particularly in that period in his life. But he would probably have very few good things to think about William Moultrie after the arrival of uh, citizen Edmund Genet, the great you're, you're first exactly French right. ambassador of the French Republic. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I make the point in the book that in Washington's correspondence with Moultrie, after his visit, yeah. uh, he, he invites William Moultrie and Mrs. Moultrie to come visit at Mount Vernon. And then... Uh, Moultrie gets involved with the French right. and finds himself on several occasions sort of running afoul of the Washington administration. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean, so Genet shows up in Charleston. Moultrie, is he the president of a Democratic Republican society, a Jacobin society? What is no, it he's called? governor of South Carolina. <laughs> what and, was that? Yeah. And he <laughs> extends courtesies to the French that... Uh, probably went a little further mm -hmm. than what he should have, and he um, allowed the French to operate their privateers mm -hmm. That's in, right. in and out of Charleston That's right. yeah. during that time. Was he himself engaged in funding a privateer or investing in a privateer? Or? I didn't find no. any evidence of that. I'm not sure at that point in his But he's life. basically giving official sanction to this. I don't, I don't know if he had the money to, to finance right. anything himself, right. yeah. but he was very enamored with Genet. Mm -hmm. So Genet comes to Philadelphia and Overland from Charleston. Overland. And celebrated the whole way. He made, uh, yes, he was like a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he gets up to the cause of liberty. Yeah. And he Genet just really doesn't understand the American system of government. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that he can appeal directly to the people to influence Washington and and it, mm -hmm. it doesn't work well for Genet. Well, Moultrie writes Genet a letter as a friend, 
sort of giving him advice, chastising him a little bit about his dealings with Washington. When is this exactly? This is 1792. Okay. Yeah, 3, 93. It'd have to be in the summer. Yeah. 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 Janae publishes Moultrie's letter in the newspaper Uh, without his permission with his own comments. (laughs) And there there is considerable backlash, uh, not just in the northern states, but also in Charleston as well. Yeah. Well, there's still a, there's a very strong Federalist presence in Charleston. William Lawton Smith, of course, is crucially important to the... One thing that, that surprised me in a, good, in a good way, that despite the partisan politics, when it came time for these guys to get together uh, for the Society of Cincinnati, hmm. um, everything was, was good. Is that right? So they, they, they didn't split on these issues? They did not. Interesting. Well, well, South Carolina would later be known for its uniformity, you know, and uh, I guess Moultrie didn't really live to see that occur. Um, so he, at the end of his life, writes this uh, autobiography of his war experience. Tell us about that. Well, it's not really an autobiography, and it's, it's really not much of a memoir. Mm. But what it is is two volumes of his personal papers mm. organized in chronological order right. with with a little bit of commentary here and there. Mm. I, I almost wish he had commented more to give me more insight into his personal thoughts and feelings, mm. but he didn't. Mm. But his memoirs have, have been, since publication, an important primary source. Mm. And I've had the opportunity to compare um, his transcription in his book with the original documents, and mm. he's accurate down to the comma. Mm, mm-hmm. and, and I was also impressed that he did not omit letters that were critical of him. So who was crucial for you in making this project happen? When you started it and as it evolved? Certainly the uh, librarians at the Anderson House, mm-hmm. the Society of Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and I got a lot of good help from the South Carolina Historical Society in, yeah. in Charleston. Well, excellent. Uh, well, before I say goodbye, then, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the next project? You said it's another revolution topic. Can't get you out of the revolution. Well, let me, let me ask, answer your question with a question. All right. Martyr of the revolution. Who is that? I would say Richard Montgomery or Joseph Warren. Martyr, Nathan Hale. Oh, well, Nathan Hale. Sure. That's right. There you go. I guess I'll have to change my first paragraph <laughs> my preface. Well, you can say some people think uh, Richard um, Montgomery. But Nathan, yeah, he, he would fit, exactly. They, well, there was actually a South Carolinian that was hanged by the British. Ah, that right. Now, so you're doing the South Carolinian version of Nathan Hale. There are, okay. there are some similarities and there are some differences. Now, Nathan Hale was a young ideal, idealistic patriot who went on a dangerous mission thought to be suicidal. The British caught him and hung him before anybody knew what had happened, and we think he uttered the memorable phrase. And yeah, you print the legend. There was a man in South Carolina. If I have only one life to give, I'm sorry, I only have one life to give for my country. Isaac Hayne was a South Carolina planner mm-hmm. who surrendered to the British after the fall of Charleston, and he was given the option of remaining in confinement or taking allegiance. 
His wife and children were deathly sick at home with smallpox, mm. and he he wanted to get home, so he 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 signed his oath of allegiance, uh -huh. being promised by the commandant in Charleston that he would never have to bear arms. Mm. So he goes home. His wife dies. Uh, he tries to live quietly. Subsequently, the uh, Continental Army takes the rest of South Carolina. The British are on the ropes. The British order him to join the Loyalists. Mm. He refuses and joins the uh, Patriot Militia instead. Mm. The British caught him and decided to make an example of him. Mm. Despite the pleadings of his remaining children, his mm. friends, prominent Loyalists all asking for his life, the British, uh, this guy Balfour again, who's come up, uh, right. yeah. uh, executed him. Oh, good. Well, that sounds like a good story. <laughs> a little more of a tragic tale, but... Yeah. Well, excellent. I look forward to seeing it, and I uh, look forward to this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.